Please take your insert out. I have some selected passages there. Last week we finished the exposition of the book of Genesis uh, two and a half years after we began, 69 sermons later. This sermon, as I alerted you to, is meant to focus on a particular theme that we uh, looked at many times throughout Genesis, but in particular concerning the life of Joseph. Uh, We went pretty methodically through chapter 37 to chapter 50, looking at the details of Joseph's life. Now I want to do a flyover of the life you are familiar with because of the time we spent uh, in order to really understand better this major, major theme, this doctrine of Scripture called the providence of God. Now, by the providence of God, I'm referring to the way that God is personally involved with the details, the events, the people, the actions of our lives and in history. When we think of God's sovereignty, there we're talking about His power over whatsoever comes to pass, His omnipotence, if you will. His providence is the personal touch on that sovereignty. It has to do with His personal guidance of events and actions. It has to do with how He is with His people, especially. Really, what could be more practical for our lives, everyday living, for our security, for our understanding, for our ability to handle whatever happens, to properly interpret the events of our lives? What could be more practical than understanding how God is with us, how God works in circumstances personally, guiding and directing? What do we mean when we say God is with us? And I say it this way because you might find yourself saying in response to a situation, boy, God was really with you. For instance, you go through a trial or someone you know just had a surgery and it was dicey and they came through it and you say to them, boy, the Lord was really with you when that happened. Or maybe something happens to you and someone you know says, boy, the Lord must have really been with you when that happened. We think of that in terms of trials often. But even in times of great blessing. Um, a surprise happens that's so obviously the hand of God's provision uh, that you think to yourself, boy, the Lord is really with me at that time, or you say that about someone else's situation, some achievement has been realized um, that they were wondering if it could be achieved, and you say, the Lord was really with you to get you through to help you succeed that way. We use this kind of language, I think, often enough. So, does this mean that the Lord would then be with us more at some times than other times? I think with an accurate understanding of God's presence with us, it will be of major practical assistance for us. Now, with the life of Joseph so fresh in our minds, it's an opportune time to consider this issue of God being with us through his life, through what Scripture says about God's relationship to Joseph. So as a refresher, I will read the passages that highlight portions of his life. They're printed on your outline, and I think this will bring you back up to fresh speed about Joseph's life and the details therein. This is God's holy word. I'll read these different sections. First, Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully 
to him. Down to verse 23 of the same chapter. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Genesis 39, first few verses. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now down towards the end of the chapter, verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now, Genesis 41. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So we have Joseph starting from a position of favor with his father. Then he finds himself in a position of disfavor with his brothers and thrown into a pit for dead. Then from that pit, he is delivered to a palace, a palace of Potiphar, a rich Egyptian, captain of the guard. Then he goes from that place of honor and privilege in the palace to a prison kept with other prisoners. And then from that prison, he's elevated literally in the same afternoon, but over a course of events that developed to that point, to the ultimate palace on earth at that time, the palace of Pharaoh. A palace to the pit, to a palace, to a prison, to a palace, ups and downs typify Joseph's life. And really when you analyze it, while not as dramatic, that's true of all of our lives, constant ups and downs as we go. So when do you suppose that God is most present in Joseph's life as we've read this? Was it when he was in the palace and those experiences? Was he most with him when he was in that prison? Or was he most with him when he was in the pit? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we know that you are present, but we don't under, often understand how and when. We believe in you. We know what you have done for us through Christ. We know you are our God and our Father. We sense our adoption in Christ through the ministry of your Spirit, testifying to us that we are your children. Yet, sometimes, and in some circumstances, we don't feel your presence. We acknowledge your care, your protection, and your provision. But we confess to, at times, struggling to understand how your presence works in our lives. In our humanness, we might think that with all that you have to do, of what importance is this little life that I'm living right now? Please teach us by your word, through Christ. Amen. 
There have been many, many popular attempts to quantify the presence of God in the life of a believer. And maybe in American Christianity, uh, there have been fewer attempts more popular than the Footprints poem. Now, before you deny the Footprints poem in your life, I bet you if I snuck into your house and got into your cupboard, I'd find some coffee mug with this poem on it. Or maybe your Aunt Gertrude in her house has a cross-stitched version of this poem or story on the wall, and you saw it over and over, and you're familiar with what it says. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. And it was at the lowest and saddest time of his life that this occurred. He was bothered by only one set of footprints and said to the Lord, I don't understand why when I needed you the most, you would leave me. Of course, the response in the poem of the Lord in the dream, during your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Now, I think that the poem illustrates how many Christians practically think about God's presence in their lives. When things come up, this is how they think. Or when they look back, this is how they interpret. So it's at least good to be reminded of God's presence because we tend to forget or we doubt His presence at times. But the poem definitely suggests something that we should analyze. It suggests that God is specially present or more present in our lives at certain times compared with other times when there was only one set of footprints. That's really what we have in mind to some degree when we say, God was really with you when that happened. So let's go to the life of Joseph since it's fresh in our minds because so much is said about God's providence in this story. In all the ups and downs of his life, help us compare it or connect it with similar experiences. I believe that our tendency to worry, to have apprehension, to stress, it can be greatly addressed as we come to better understand what the Bible says about God's presence with his children. Now, with Joseph in mind, let's go and ask this guiding question. When was God most with Joseph in his life? Was it when he was in those palace experiences? Was it when he was in the prison? Or was it when he was in the pit? First, think of his palace experiences. I'll use this term to describe the the periods of, you might say, ease and comfort and blessing in his life. I don't mean like it had no trial whatsoever, but if you looked at this epoch in time, you'd say he had it pretty good. And boy, God was with him in those palace experiences. I mean, Joseph, compared to his brothers, he was born into the palace. I mean, he had the favor of his father upon him more than anyone else in his family experienced. He was the favorite child. He got good stuff. In fact, it says in chapter 37, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. I mean, it's point blank in a place of of choice privilege with his father. And because he was the son of his old age, the son of Rachel the wife whom he loved. 
And he loved him so much that he gave him a special, very expensive robe of many colors that we are familiar with. And I'm sure that this coat just typified all the ways that Joseph experienced blessings from the hand of his father. He probably could look back at that epoch in time, especially when things weren't going well, and think, oh, the days of my youth back then, the palace of his father. But it got much greater for him, even through difficult circumstances. He finds himself, though terribly treated by his brothers, in the household of Potiphar, though he be sold as a slave. Now, he wasn't sold as a slave normally would be, where they would end up in terrible hard labor, dying that way. He wasn't sent to go build the pyramids. Instead, he's put in the house of Potiphar, a rich man with a vast, sprawling estate, and he's given watch care over all of it so he can enjoy not only the authority that comes with that, but all the the pleasures that come with it as well, all the stuff that he has access to. He's in a palace. In chapter 39, the first verses, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites, brought him to his place. And it says, the Lord was with Joseph. There it is, point blank, explicit. Certainly, we'd have to say, to this point, he's most with Joseph in this palace experience. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. How did he become successful? The Lord was with him. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with Joseph. That's the reason. That's the explicit statement of God's presence with him. Certainly we could say, and there are footprints everywhere here, it's when God is most present with Joseph in his palace experiences. It says in chapter 39, his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused him in all that he did to succeed. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. Because the Lord was with him, he gets all this palace experience. And he's made overseer of everything, put in the charge of all that Potiphar had. Because of Joseph, Potiphar didn't worry about anything about what he, except for what he ate. Everyone at his command. Certainly, the palace is where God is most with Joseph. This could not have happened except for God's supernatural work like this. Well, this isn't even the best of the palace experiences for Joseph. There's one greater than this. He's in a prison for a time, as we know, but God miraculously gives him interpretive abilities to understand dreams that no one else gets and uses this to bring him out and into the service now, not of just Potiphar, but of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the known world at that time. Whatever he had realized in Potiphar's house, it was exponentially multiplied in Pharaoh's household, in Pharaoh's palace. God delivers him into this incredible experience that goes far beyond anything he could have imagined. Pharaoh says to his servants in chapter 41, can we find a man like this? What kind of a man? In whom is the Spirit of God? God's with him. God's most with him in these palace experiences, we might say. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, since God's with you, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. He's so with him that he gains this privilege with Potiphar in all this power, in all this luxury, everything he experiences. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you, Pharaoh says. The Lord was with Joseph, repeats twice. Potiphar's house, 
Pharaoh's house, certainly he's most with him in these kinds of experiences in his life. In fact, the same exact phrase is used in 1 Samuel describing David. And David had success in all his undertakings. It says, for the Lord was with him. Why did David have success? Because the Lord was with him. Why was he the king? The Lord was with him. His palace experiences are those moments where God is most with him, it would seem. In fact, Joshua is told something similar when he's about ready to take Moses' leadership mantle. It says in Joshua 1, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. These moments, these high moments of authority, of responsibility, of impact, of the reception of all these good things, these palace experiences, this is where God is most with his child, we might think. Where was the palace for you? Think of those times where there is some incredible blessing that surprised you, um, and you know that God gave you this, and you didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you, and you're so grateful uh, you know he's with you in this special, you're really keenly aware of God's special grace in your life. Could be something like a, a job promotion you didn't expect. It could be uh, maybe you just had your first child or your first grandchild. Uh, it could be some new security you have in your vocation that you didn't know before. Maybe it's just a vacation you were able to take that relieved stress and wonderful things happened in that time and you got some peace and you thought to yourself, the Lord is really with us at this moment. It's at these times that we're able to notice God's guiding hand, a blessing upon us. Certainly, we would say, in the life of Joseph, God was with him, for sure. It says that. He's most with him. Would that be right? Well, I think that if that's all we had of Joseph's life, we'd be happy to say that. But we have more of Joseph's life. And I know you all know, uh, those are the mountaintop experiences. And we do tend to remember those, and we draw upon those, and they're blessings to us. But the majority of our life probably isn't spent on those mountaintops. In fact, the preparation for experiencing the mountaintops and interpreting them aright comes from the valley moments. And that's definitely, definitely what we have in Joseph's life between Potiphar and Pharaoh in those palaces. He has a valley that's significant. He was on the height of authority and responsibility and everything that was happening, and he plumbed to the depths of it when he was wrongly accused. In chapter 39, we read, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So he starts to get pressured by Potiphar's wife. But he refuses her over and over again. He he honors God. He honors his master. He refused and said to his master's wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's doing the right stuff. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But eventually, one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the door of the house. And as soon as she saw that he left his garment, in her hand and fled out of the house. She called to the men of the household and said, See, you, he's brought this Hebrew servant to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cry out with a loud voice. And of course it says, As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison now, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. 
and he was there in the prison. He, as quick as he ascended in Potiphar's household, he descended and now he finds himself in prison. The situation is completely reversed. He's at the valley of the situation now. He's lied about. He's maligned. He's disparaged. His reputation is sullied unjustly. His freedoms are taken away. His power is taken away. A complete turnaround. Terrible psychological trauma goes with all of this. Pain and suffering in a dungeon of sorts. Not comfortable. Nothing is easy and nothing is privileged now. Here he is at the bottom in the prison. But then we read in chapter 39. This is where the footprints show up. This is where we have to say, wow, outward circumstances would not argue this, but it seems like God might be most with him, not when he was in the palace, but now at this moment, in chapter 39, a most unusual thing happens. It could only be done by God. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor of all people, favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I mean, who gets this kind of favor? And the keeper of the prison puts Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. You could see God most with Joseph now in a most unusual way in the prison, just by what he has him do there. The keeper of the prison, it says, paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. It's amazing that Potiphar did that in his household in freedom. But now for a man who's depended on his keeping order to give all that authority, that autonomy up to Joseph, that is God with Joseph. And it says, in fact, because the Lord was with him. That's why the charge was given to Joseph. Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed, Genesis 39, 23. So here it is. In the prison moment, that is where God is most with his child. Where's the prison for you? Maybe not literally, but some place where you're so constricted in your situation that you can't seem to get out of it. Could be something you got yourself into. Could it be something that was done to you. It could be a crisis of health that you're under the shadow that you just can't escape. It's just there. You feel entrapped. Some crisis of career. Maybe some crisis of finances. Some crisis with your parents. Some crisis with your children. Maybe it's a situation out of your control and you feel uh, completely imprisoned by it. How can you see relief? But then at that moment, God gives you relief or God gives you a sense of peace about it. His presence is known to you in a special way that you would not know otherwise. And you know it's true. You know it's the case. It's what prompts the psalmist to, to say most famously in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's at that moment in the prison that God is most with Joseph. In fact, this is not unusual for the way God acts. The Apostle Paul, who is doing ministry for the kingdom, an apostle of Christ, sacrificing greatly for this cause. But he has this thorn in the flesh that comes, and he keeps asking God to relieve it so he can serve him better, at least in his mind. He feels trapped by this thing that's confronting him. And we read Paul write in 2 Corinthians, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, to keep me from depending on myself and my privileges. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, 
even though he had this privilege with God as an apostle, a thorn was granted to him. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. See, in this situation where he feels trapped by this thorn in the flesh, captured by it, he's dependent more and more upon God who is with him, and he sees him as with him. But he said to me, as he prayed for relief, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So now we can see the footprints more clearly when we pause to look, even in the time of prison. Because it gives God opportunity to draw our attention to his presence so we could say he's most with us, right? Well, if we're honest with the text, there's still another situation in Joseph's life that we would have to properly analyze in the ups and the downs before we could grant that it's the prison where God is most present with him. You have to go back to the beginning of this trek that we meet Joseph on. Back when he was left for dead by his own brothers in the bottom of that pit. And I think the wording Moses uses by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 37 is meant for us to grasp the utter helplessness of his situation. In the prison, he's able to still use some of his chief operating officer administrative abilities to get noticed. In the pit, that's not going to help him. In fact, it says in chapter 37, in description, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. They, they stripped him of his identity. Anyone who thought well of him, his father with the robe, didn't matter anymore. His reputation meant nothing. Now he stripped them of the robe. And it, then they threw him into the pit. But the description is not to be missed. They threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. There's no question Moses wants us to know nothing Joseph could do could get himself out of the situation. Total helplessness. His aptitudes professionally and his giftedness and all that would not gain him freedom in this waterless pit. He was there to die. He was as good as dead. Only a rescue from the outside could possibly change his fate. Then, when all seemed lost footprints begin to line the bottom of that empty cistern. They sat down to eat in verse 25 of chapter 37. And they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and they were going on their way to Egypt with a bunch of stuff to bring. Then Judah, of all people, who we know the significance of him, Judah says to his brothers, you know, what good would it do us? What would we gain by killing him? Why don't we just sell him? So God's presence manifests itself with footprints everywhere here as the brothers decide to sell him to the Ishmaelites. Now, what we know about this event certainly attests that this has got to be when God's most with him because this action begins the rest of the journey. He, God picks him up out of the pit, you might say, and then through the rest of his life. So that's the initial, that's where the, the real strength has to happen in that lift. In fact, the description by Joseph later when the brothers are talking about it, as we just looked at, which you meant for evil, you threw me into the pit. But God meant it for good. So really, God was doing it. 
he's most with it in the most helpless moment possible. It was really God there with him. And he did this for the purpose of bringing about that many people would be saved and kept alive as they are today. One commentator said, God's secret providence is behind the darkest deeds of men and works to their ultimate good. You can't get much darker than attempted murder on the brother. And just when it would seem that God was not with him in that cistern, when it would seem that God had abandoned him, when he was as good as dead, they meant it for evil, but God was there. God meant it for good. He was most clearly with him. You could say he was clearly most with Joseph at that time in the pit. That most desperate hour, God was absolutely with him. How could he be more with him than he was there? Couldn't we surmise that of all the times in Joseph's life, the ups and the downs, that that's the moment, that initial moment there? Where was the pit for you? The times where you know only God's rescuing hand can save you. There's absolutely nothing you can do to change the situation. How about the ultimate pit of your life? Do you remember when you didn't know God? When you were dead in your trespasses and sins? You can't get into any greater pit than the state of sin that we are in before we come to know Christ. He has to come to get us. There could be sinful patterns in our lives, even as believers, where we we find ourselves so struggling with some besetting sin that we never seem to be able to pull ourselves out of. We have to have God rip this thing from our life, this passion from our life, this desire from our life, this whatever it is. But you know, life for everybody at some level starts estranged from God, conceived in iniquity because of sin. Maybe you remained in that ultimate pit for years, seeing no purpose of life in life whatsoever, dead in trespasses and sins. But like in Joseph's situation, God savingly rescued you and made you alive together with Christ. In Joseph's seemingly hopeless situation, there did come a rescue. While it seemed at the time that God was not present, God was present. Maybe we won't even say most present. It was at the time in, this, in Joseph's life and even in our lives when God shows himself to be miraculously there, savingly there. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So there's Joseph, completely helpless, unable to save himself. And God saved him from the pit and then carried him out and carried him through these other periods of his life, right? Isn't that what happened? You know, if we're totally honest as we survey Joseph's life, if we're totally honest with what the Bible records, there really truly is never a time in the life of Joseph, nor is there ever a time in your life or my life, where there are two sets of footprints for crying out loud as the poem would suggest. There's only ever actually one. And they are those of the Lord Jesus carrying us. God was most present in the life of Joseph when he was in the palace, when he was in the prison, when he was in the pit, and everywhere along the way. And we must recognize that's true always. 
I would like to suggest a new poem. Now, I'm not a poet, and I know it, and I don't know if you want this on your mug, but I think it's more accurate. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed that he was walking on the beach with the Lord. Across the sky, a life flashed before him. There was a cross and there was a grave. Footprints led to the cross, then skipped over to the grave. To his surprise, the footprints continued on the other side of the grave. Then he saw the impression of his own dead body lying on the sand. The footprints meet the impression, lifted the body, and go on through all the ups and downs of his life. And the man was perplexed and asked the Lord, What is the meaning of this? Why is there only one set of footprints? And the Lord replied, My precious child, you were dead, but I made you alive, and it is I who carried you from the pit, and I carry you still today. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you, whether you be in the palace, the prison, or the pit. The prophet Isaiah spoke timeless words about the presence of God with his children. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will save. Let's pray. Lord, when we fail to realize your presence, please point us to the truth of your word. It is in your word that we find what we need to live. Your word is where we find what is real. We thank you, O Lord, for never leaving us, for never forsaking us. O Lord, you have said that your presence will go with us. Lord Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. You have promised to never leave us or forsake us. You have promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. Pray this in Christ. Amen.